And as you're being seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's Word? And would you turn with me to the book of Exodus? The book of Exodus. So before I departed for a long journey, we were going through a series looking at the tabernacle, this earthly dwelling place of God that was this visual symbol for the people of God of some vital spiritual truths. You could think of the tabernacle like God's portable pop-up book. So if you've ever seen a pop-up book, you open the page and up pops these nice, wonderful visual images that are supposed to you know, help young readers learn. Well, the tabernacle was kind of the early version of that in many ways. Well, we come now to the last piece of furniture in the tabernacle, which is the Ark of the Covenant. So we're going to be in Exodus 25, and I'm going to read verses 10 down to 22. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Exodus 25, starting verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall, be not, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you be pleased to use the preaching of your word as a means of enabling us more and more to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as you work in us through your means. For your good pleasure. Lord, grant us the humility we need to sit underneath the authority of your inerrant and inspired word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine yourself in this scenario with me. So this is just imaginative participation, not actual participation. You come to Sunday school class one day, and the teacher begins the class in quite a different way than you're used to. Because to everyone's surprise and confusion, he begins the class by asking everyone to stand up in the adult Sunday school class so they can play a game together. And before he tells you what the game is, he holds up a crisp, clean $100 bill. And he says, I'm going to ask you three true or false statements. And if anyone is left standing after these three true and false statements, you get $100. Well, as Presbyterians, the class had never played games in church. In fact, they weren't even confident it was legal. But for $100, they were willing to let love 
cover a multitude of sins. So the first statement given to the class, if you believe that God has instituted structures of authority in our world and that it is good and right for us to honor them, please remain standing. If not, please be seated. Well, it took people a moment to process what was just said, but once they understood the statement, everyone remained standing. Then the second statement, if you personally and genuinely appreciate and respect the structures of authority that God has placed you under right now, please remain standing. If not, please be seated. Well, the class was processing the question. There were some looks of confusion on their faces. And so the teacher offered this clarification. Let me give you some examples of what it would look like to not respect and appreciate the structures of authority that God has placed you under right now. If you ever disregard your boss's feedback at work because you think they're incompetent, please be seated. If you complain to others about how the church is run because you think you could do it better, please be seated. Or if you ever speak crassly and harshly about a governing official that is over you because you disagree with them, please be seated. Well, once the examples were given, two-thirds of the class sat down very quietly. Now the final statement. If you personally have always unquestioningly honored God's authority over you, please remain standing. If not, please be seated. And no examples were necessary because the whole class sat down very quietly. And the teacher folded up the $100 bill, put it in his pocket, and he said, now that you're seated and quiet, I'd like to talk to you this morning about the importance of God's authority and why we resist it in our lives. And they were ready to listen. And what that fictional story illustrates is that it is very easy for us to affirm authority as a good and right thing when it's general and impersonal. I think authority is a good thing. I think you know it's right to have structures of authority. But when it gets closer to home, when it becomes personal and particular, it gets much harder to not only affirm it, but to honor it as a good and right thing. Why is that? Well, I think that is the case in part because we are swimming in a culture of anti-authoritarianism. We are swimming in a cultural sea whose current is pushing us toward anti-authoritarianism. So a slogan of youth culture in our day is nobody is going to tell us what to do or what to believe unless they're a social media influencer that has more followers than me. Or a slogan of third wave feminist movement is my body, my choice. No one can tell me what to do with my body. Or a slogan of a losing political side, whatever political side you're on, is not my president. All of these are statements of an anti-authoritarian culture. Or if you want a literary example from Narnia, read The Last Battle and look at the dwarves in The Last Battle. The dwarves are for the dwarves. We've seen authority used wrongly, so we're going to be our own authority. All this and more conspires to get us to resist, if not reject outright, God's authority and its institutions in the world. And the nation of Israel faced a similar temptation as they had just come out of and were heading towards nations and peoples that were filled with and committed to worshiping idols, worshiping false gods. And what made idolatry in their day so tempting, so compelling, is that it was the choose-your-own-adventure religion of its day. You had a lot of say in the God you worship. 
the rituals and regulations that you had to perform and the benefits that were supposedly come from this choose-your-own-adventure religion. Idolatry was tempting and compelling because it was convenient and it was comfortable and you could kind of do it at your leisure. But the tabernacle, generally, and the Ark of the Covenant specifically, in which Israel was called to make it, observe it, and understand it, communicated a much different message to them. The ark was the earthly symbol of the heavenly throne of the king above all kings. And it served as a constant reminder that God is in charge, that he is the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, and his people are called to submit to him. Or to put it more brashly, the ark was a reminder that there is one throne and you are not welcome to sit on it, but you are welcome to submit to it. That was one of the things communicated by the Ark of the Covenant. So what I want to do this morning is look at the Ark of the Covenant and see what it teaches us about God's throne and by extension what it teaches us about God's authority over us. But before I do that, I have to convince you that the Ark is in fact an earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne. So let me do that by drawing your attention first to the presence of the cherubim that stood atop this Ark and symbolize that this was God's throne. So if you look at verses 17 to 20 of Exodus 25, what I just read for you a moment ago, you see described there the cherubim that are to be worked into, hammered into this lid that goes over the Ark of the Covenant. And everywhere in scripture where you see these angelic beings is always in connection with the throne of God. They're the guardians of God's throne, And they're the ones who stand as representatives that you are in the throne room of God. So in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah goes into the temple but sees a picture of the heavenly throne, he sees God surrounded by these angelic beings. In Revelation 4, when John gets a window into the heavenly throne room, he sees these angelic beings. So they signify that this is God's throne. Also, the presence of God that is uniquely connected to this particular piece of furniture demonstrates that this is a symbol of God's throne. Look at verse 22 of Exodus 25. So what the Lord says, there where the ark is, the mercy seat where the cherubim are, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all the commands that I want you to honor. So when you, when you picture a throne, The thing you often picture is a king sitting on a throne in his official garb doing official kingly things like issuing edicts and decrees and commands. Well, what do you have happening here from this ark, this mercy seat? You have God meeting there with his people and there he's going to speak to them and there he's going to give them the commandments that are to define the relationship between God and his people. Well, another point or proof that this is a symbol of God's throne is how the rest of the Bible speaks about the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to turn quickly with me to Psalm 99. Psalm 99. We're going to sing a version of Psalm 99 in response to this sermon because Psalm 99 is a royal psalm celebrating the kingship of God as it is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. Psalm 99, let me just read. I'll start in verse one and just make some comments. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. So a number of Psalms start that way. This is a royal Psalm praising the kingship of God, the king above all kings. 
Let the peoples tremble. And notice this. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. What is the psalmist picturing and thinking about when he says he sits upon the cherubim? It's the Ark of the Covenant, the picture, the symbol of God's heavenly throne. Verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Kingly, royal language. Let them praise your great and awesome name. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Verse 4 is descriptions of how a king should govern. He should govern justly, equitably. He should execute righteousness. This is the king issuing edicts from his throne. And then verse 5, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Referring to the tabernacle, the heavenly or the earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne. So the ark is the earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne. But now the question is, what characterizes this throne and how are we to respond to it? Well, God's throne is the central throne. God's throne is central to everything in the life of God's people. The Ark of the Covenant is the heart and center of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the heart and center of the nation of Israel, but the Ark of the Covenant is the heart and center of the tabernacle. And you can tell this because the Ark of the Covenant is the only item that has a privilege of being put in the most restricted, special place in the tabernacle itself, the most holy place. So we've walked through the altar of sacrifice in the, the outer court, then the basin of washing, then you walk into the holy place, and you have the table of bread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and then the veil of separation, that thick curtain with cherubim woven into it. But behind that veil is the most holy place. You could say the most restricted place and in there is one item the ark of the covenant so kids if you were in a museum or maybe a special government building and you saw a room that was labeled top secret restricted access you probably think this is a pretty important uh, room i'd like to get inside there but then let's say you saw someone who had a very official looking outfit and they were carrying something that was covered over with you know, maybe a box or a, a little curtain thing. And they pulled out a card, they swiped it on that door, and they went in that door and they shut it behind you closely and said, top secret, restricted access. When you saw them walk in with that item, what would you think about that person and that item who got to go into that room? Well, I'm guessing you would assume automatically that whoever they were and whatever they were carrying was pretty important, was pretty significant. Well, that's a bit like what Israel experience every time they saw the Ark of the Covenant. When the tabernacle moved and was reset up, the Ark of the Covenant go and be passed into and placed in the Holy of Holies. Because what would happen when the nation of Israel moved, and you see this in the book of Numbers chapter 2, whenever the nation of Israel took up camp and left, the thing that always led in the front was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the primary object carried as it were by the poles by the priests it always led out in front with the tabernacle with the presence of god the shekinah glory cloud leading them as well symbolizing that god his earthly symbol of his heavenly throne is the one leading us god leads from the front and his people follow him wherever he goes but once the cloud stopped and telling them this is where you're going to set up camp 
God had designed a specific arrangement for the people for how they're to set themselves up. So if if you're reading Numbers 2, you get this long list of numbers and tribes and how they're to be arranged. And what it is setting up is basically like a military base camp. Like if I've never been on a military operation, I just played a military video game once, but I assume that if you're in a military operation, that when you get to base camp, you you have assignments. You, You stay here, you stay here, you stay here. Well, Numbers 2 is like that for the nation of Israel. This tribe is over here to the east. This tribe over here is to the west. They're going to be to the north. They're going to be to the south. Or if you went to school, you had a sign seat, and the teacher comes, shows you the chart. Everyone has to sit in their assigned seats. Well, when the nation of Israel was all set up as they were told to by God, they made like a circle on the three points of the compass, and in the very heart and center was the tabernacle. And there was theology in that geography. And what it was communicating to the nation of Israel is that Everything is to orient itself around and be directed toward the glory of God, which dwells in the tabernacle. Everything rotated around the tabernacle, which was in the heart and the center of the camp of the people every time they moved and reset up camp. And the heart and center of that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. So they would see it set up and they would see the Ark brought into the Holy of Holies. But whenever the Ark moved, it was always covered over by some of the curtains that would be later put onto the tabernacle. So you never actually saw the ark itself properly out in the open. It was always covered, always covered. This was kind of top secret, restricted access type stuff. And so it always led the way. It was always kind of covered as this top secret thing because it's the earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne. And it always reminded them that God's throne is to be central. It is to be that thing which we orient all of our lives around because the authority of God is to be the heart and center of every person's life. So the nation of Israel camped around this earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne as a picture and symbol that all of life should be wholeheartedly oriented around the God who sits on the throne above every single throne. And it's interesting, when you look at modern architecture and house arrangements, if you look at the modern American living room, it has a center point, and that center point is usually always the television. Unless you're Chip and Joanna Gaines, you don't put televisions in, apparently. But most modern American, I'm not saying this is sinful in and of itself, but it is interesting that everything orients around this, this American idol, as it were, the symbol of the god of entertainment and amusement, the god Bacchus, entertain us and amuse us. And every time I go on vacation, I'm always freshly reminded how chained I have become to my phone. You know, I'm not getting beeps and buzzes uh, like I normally do, but I, I keep checking. And I, I, d- I dare not even look at the, the, the stats on my phone of how much I picked it up. But slowly over time, when you're, when you're in rural areas in Wisconsin that have terrible Wi-Fi and bad service, the Lord just kind of frees you from your phone by necessity. And it's, it's so freeing to not be revolving my life around the endless beeps and buzzes and scrolling that can happen on a phone. So to orient all of life around the throne of God means that we seek to bring every single area of life in alignment with the, the will of God revealed in his word. To honor the authority of God looks like orienting all of life, every area of it, under the revealed will of God in his word. The litmus test of do you honor God's authority is are you submitting every area of your life to the authority of God's word. So when you come to the word, 
and you come up against something that you don't necessarily like or want to embrace right away, who wins? Your preferences or God's precepts? To sit under the authority of God's word means that you do not treat it like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Have you ever been to an all-you-can-eat buffet? I, I think they make for great dinner. So one of the camps we went to while we were uh, on vacation had basically a buffet-style meal. You could go up there, you could say, I want some of that, none of that, please. I'd like double of that. You could eat dessert first. It's great. It's a bad way to handle the Bible, to handle your relationship with God. Come to the Word and say, I'd like a little bit of that. I don't want any of that, and, and I, think I'll take, I think I'll take that. Do you look to God's Word to shape your thinking and acting and living about every area of life, your work, how you spend your time, how you manage your money, the type of friendships you should have, how you should think about politics, economics, the clothes you wear, the words you use on and on and on. To honor the centrality of the throne of God means that you seek to replace a pick and choose mentality with a wholehearted, whole life submission to the whole Bible. Well, God's throne is not only central, it was also designed to be a commemorative throne. Commemorative throne. Whenever you commemorate something, you're doing something tangible to honor the memory of some significant person or event. So think of the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. There's all this ceremony and kind of circumstance there commemorating this soldier that was known only but to God and buried there that served in World War I to commemorate all these soldiers who have given their lives to the freedom that we get to experience here in America. This is a commemorative tomb. Well, the earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne functioned as a box that carried three commemorative items. So one of those items is listed in Exodus 25, verse 16. And in fact, twice... God tells Moses to put something in the ark. So if you look at Exodus 25, 16, he says, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And he'll say that again, I think in verse 20. And this refers to the 10 commandments, those tablets of stone on which were written the commandments that were to govern the relationship between God and his people. That symbolizes this covenant relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. And here's what it looks like to live before me. Well, there were also two more items, and they're listed in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. Don't, don't turn there, because I'm going to make you turn to a bunch of other places, but I'll just tell you what they are. In Hebrews 9, it mentions that not only was there the tablets of the testimony, but there was a golden bowl holding a piece of manna, and there was Aaron's rod or staff that budded and flowered. Well, why are these three items inside the ark. What do they have in common? Well, there's two things they have in common. One, they all commemorate God's authority in one way or another. The Ten Commandments commemorate God's moral authority. He alone has the right to give commandments, to declare right from wrong, good from evil. It's his moral authority. Then the golden bowl of manna commemorates God's spiritual authority. He alone has the authority to tell the heavens to rain down bread on his people so that they have something to eat as they're in the barren wilderness. He has supernatural authority. And then Aaron's staff commemorates God's spiritual authority. 
or his authority to govern the life of his people. And this one takes a little more explaining it. In fact, the story comes from Numbers 16 and 17. And in that section, Numbers 16 and 17, the tribes of Israel don't like that it's the Levites. It's Aaron and his offspring that get to be the ones who are kind of the the head and the priests that are in charge of the tabernacle. They want to govern themselves. They want a pure democracy. And so they're rebelling against it. Who, who put Moses in charge? Who put Aaron in charge? They're challenging God's right to determine who's in charge. So God tells them to take 12 staffs, representing all the 12 tribes, to lay them out. And the staff that buds and flowers shows who is in charge of the tabernacle. And it's only Aaron's staff, the tribe of Levi's staff, that buds and flowers, signifying that God has authority to determine who's in charge over his people. Well, these items also commemorate a second thing. They commemorate the natural human tendency to rebel and complain against God's authority. The Ten Commandments can never be separated from the golden calf episode that follows shortly on their delivery and arrival. Because remember, the Ten Commandment tablets were made twice. First ones were broken and smashed when Moses came down from the mountain because he saw the people who couldn't wait long enough for him to come back, so they decided to make this golden calf. And Aaron's explanation was, you know, gold fell in the fire and out popped this calf, and I just thought, let's celebrate. It's their rebellion against God's authority. So it's the second version. It's version 2.0 of the tablets that is in the Ark of the Covenant because the first ones were broken. The manna cannot be separated from the people's grumbling. The manna came in response because the people looked at the wilderness, which didn't have a Chick-fil-A, and they said, God has brought us out here to kill us. We're going to die. We should go back to Egypt where there was food. And then later in Numbers, they complained once more about the manna and said, we've had enough manna. I want, we want variety in our menu. We don't just want manna. We want other stuff as well. And then Aaron's staff, as I mentioned, came in response to the people challenging God's right to determine who's in charge of the tabernacle. They wanted a pure democracy. We want to choose for ourselves who would represent us. And I think this points out that the fact, it points out that the sin underneath every single sin is first and foremost unbelief. There's an unbelief, in this case it says, I don't believe God's authority is good and right for me. And then just above that sin that's beneath every sin of unbelief is then pride. The pride that says, you know what? I know what's best for me. So I'm going to take over as commander of this ship and master of this person's fate. My ship, my choice, my fate, you know, my choice. And yet the whole history of the nation of Israel is an object lesson telling us that this form of unbelief and this form of pride only ever leads to spiritual bankruptcy and a myriad of other problems. In fact, Part of why the Old Testament is written, tracing this history over and over, their sins and failures and fallings and shortcomings, is so that it would serve as an example to you. To put it uh, brashly, Israel is to pay your dumb tax for you. Look at what they do and the consequences that it has and don't do what they do. In fact, we were, one time we were sitting around as a family and my parents were pointing out that my, my brother, he's younger than me by about four and a half years, that and he never really acted out. He kind of always got in line, did what he was supposed to do, didn't have any problems. They never worried about getting 
a phone call about him. And so they asked my brother, you know, why is that? Like, what do you think it was about you? And here was his answer. He said, I just watched what Andrew did, and I didn't do that. <laughs> and everyone laughed because it was mostly true, okay? And I told him, you're welcome. You know, I was, I was looking out for my younger brother. That's what the nation of Israel is to be for us. They're to show us what this form of unbelief against God's authority and this form of pride looking to take it for ourselves, what it does for us. To withdraw our spiritual allegiance from God's authority and invest it in our own is a bankrupt investment every single time in the end. Every single time. But it's good when it's general and impersonal, but let's get personal. In what areas of your life are you not believing that God's authority over you is right and good? In what ways are you resisting or rebelling against God's authority and saying to him, I think I can do this better my way? The call is to restore the investment of your submission and allegiance back to God's authority because you will never regret in light of eternity the return on investment you get from that. So God's throne is central, it's commemorative, it's also uncontrollable. God's throne is uncontrollable. What I mean by this is that the ark was not some magical, manipulative, spiritual device that had the power to melt your enemy's faces off if they ever got close enough to it and you lifted the lid off, okay? I think Steven Spielberg did a great job with an entertaining character in Indiana Jones, but he has really bad theology. And if you get your theology from Hollywood, please see me afterwards and I'll have some books for you. And yet we have this understanding of it that comes from popular culture and even I think a little bit from the scriptures as well. Is this some kind of magical, manipulatable, spiritual device that has inherent power in and of itself? And the answer is no. In a sense, the ark was nothing more than a golden box with a cool lid that had some neat items in it. It was nothing more than that. Now, it's probably worth a lot of money, but money is just paper in the end. Its spiritual value and significance rested not in itself, but in its symbolism as appointed by God. It was holy because God declared it to be holy. That's why, and no more. And so in that sense, it is like the bread and wine that we'll participate in in the Lord's Supper. And you'll see this when you look at it. There is nothing inherently significant about the bread and wine we use. The wine costs about $3.50, given inflation, and the bread is just gluten-free bread that I could find somewhere. And it is insignificant in and of itself, except that God has appointed it as a symbol of his body and his blood. And it spiritually moves us to consider, as we partake as a body together, what Christ has done for us on the cross. Well, Israel didn't quite get that memo because they got the silly notion that the ark was itself a magical, manipulatable spiritual device that would give them the ability to control the hand of God. And so in 2 Samuel 4 through 6, or 1 Samuel 4 through 6, I should say, Israel is going to go out to battle against the Philistines. They're, they're, they're kind of their rival at the time, the Philistines. You think of David and Goliath representing those two nations. And in order to secure their success, they decide they need the ark because they went out to battle one time and they lost. And so they said, you know what? The reason we lost is because we did not have the ark with us. So they go retrieve the ark, which they do not have the right and the authority to do. They bring it onto the battlefield. 
and they lose even worse than last time. In fact, in the text in 1 Samuel 4, it says that day was a very great slaughter. So it doesn't give any numbers, but that doesn't sound good if you're on the battlefield. They not only lose very badly as they try to manipulate God's hand through the ark, but the ark itself gets captured by the Philistines. And then the Philistines think, we now have this magical, manipulatable, spiritual device, and let's bring it to our place. So they bring it to the house of Dagon, one of the gods of the nation of Philistia. And in that house, it rests, but every morning they come back, something has happened to the statue of Dagon. One day it's falling over, another day it falls over, it looks like it's bowing, and then the next day it falls over and its head is cut off. And not only that, but the nation of the Philistines is experiencing plagues and all sorts of issues going on. And so they said, we need to get rid of this thing because this, this is not good. So they return it to the nation of Israel and Israel now thinks this doesn't have the power we thought it did. This is, you know, it's not magical. It didn't give us anything. So they start to treat it like a common object. They just put it on an ox cart. They don't cover it like they're supposed to. They don't carry it on the tent poles like they're supposed to. And then it stumbles and falls because the ox do. And then Uzzah reaches out his hand and touches it. And immediately he's struck down dead. And when people read that section about Uzzah touching the ark in 1 Samuel 6, they think that's pretty strong. But when you see the whole sequence of what Israel did and how they treated the ark, you understand what God was teaching them. I will not be mocked and manipulated and let everyone stand in fear. It was like the Old Testament church discipline episode. Do not treat my name as common. And then it's actually right after that, I think in 1 Samuel 8, where Israel says, we, we want a different king. We want a king like all the other nations because they don't like the king that they have because he is not tameable and controllable. And so the Israelites learn that God will not be manipulated and the Philistines learn that God will not be mocked. Both learn that God's throne is uncontrollable. And we often forget that. And we try to bend God's will to ours rather than conform our will to his And I think a great place to look and see this is examine your prayers. In your prayers, do they sound more like you are talking to a wish-granting genie or the holy God who sits on the throne of heaven? Because what is the most common refrain in our prayer is, Lord, help us to be safe, help us to have a good time, and to enjoy this fast food that was about to go into our body. Examine your prayers. Do they sound more like you're talking to a wish-granting genie or the holy God of heaven? Are your prayers filled with letting God know your will or pleading with him to conform your will to his? Not my will, but yours be done. Well, it's a central throne. It's commemorative. It's uncontrollable. And finally, God's throne is a compassionate throne. It's a compassionate throne. The lid on the top of this ark is appropriately named the mercy seat the seat of mercy, the place of mercy, or some of your translations might say the atonement cover or the covering of atonement. And the cherubim on this lid were even designed, as Exodus 25.20 tells us, to have their faces perpetually fixed on one specific location. Their eyes were looking down at this central place on the lid, the, the mercy seat, as if they were eagerly anticipating something that was going to happen at that location. And there was something specific that they were waiting for. And it happened once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
So in Leviticus 16, we have this description of the Day of Atonement. And it's the one day a year when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and interact with the Ark of the Covenant. He wouldn't touch it. But the blood of the lamb that had been slain would be sprinkled on that mercy seat once a year. I mean, consider this. After the Ark was made, after it was placed where it was supposed to be, no human hand ever touched the Ark proper. The poles were to be in there, and they were to remain in there permanently so that no one would touch it. And one exception is Uzzah. The only thing that ever touched the Ark of the Covenant after it was made and placed in the tabernacle was the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the Day of Atonement once a year. And think where it was placed. It was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant in which was contained three symbols of the people's rebellion against God's authority. So what was God communicating there? He was communicating that though you've rebelled against me, broken my law, complained against my provision, ignored my prerogative to govern how I please, I will cover your sin with my compassion. It is a throne of mercy and grace, a throne of compassion. And what it also symbolized is that the God who sits on that throne who has all authority in heaven and earth is the one person who has authority to forgive sins. And he loves to use his authority to do that very thing. He delights to forgive sin. And he demonstrated that once a year by covering the very object that symbolized and commemorated their rebellion against him. So the question everyone wants to know now is what happened to this earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne? Did Indiana Jones find it and what museum did he put it in? Where is the mercy seat now? And the best answer I can give you is it doesn't matter. It's gone because it served its temporary purpose to point to the throne of God, which is a throne of grace. And we now have a true and better mercy seat in the cross and empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, you get a more accurate picture of what the king who sits on the throne is like than the Ark of the Covenant will ever give you. Who is the king who sits on the throne? Well, he's the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant who was obedient to death, even death on a shameful cross. That's the king on the throne. And he's the king who wears a crown of thorns on his head and nails in his hands and feet so that his blood will sprinkle the mercy seat once and for all to forgive us of our sins. And he's the king who has left the tomb empty, who has risen victoriously over sin and Satan and death so that we can stand justified before God. And it's interesting that when Jesus' followers come to the tomb, they, they, they expect to find it with Jesus so they can anoint him for burial. But instead, they find it empty of Jesus, and there's two angels sitting in that empty tomb, commemorating the fact that this is the new and better mercy seat, the place where God, his justice, and his grace have met to forgive us of our sins. What a king and what a throne. Let's pray.